Hi there. Welcome back to the Teaching Culture Cast, the home for community and culture in teaching. I'm Matthew Bliss, I'm your host, and welcome back to another episode. As we're drawing closer to Christmas, a lot of the Australian schools are starting to wrap up term four in the end of the year. So I hope that you all listening are taking the chance for a bit of a break, getting some time away, and just leaving things behind at school for a little bit longer before we head back into a brand new year in 2022. And you deserve a hearty congratulations as well. This hasn't been the easiest year to get through, particularly for the educational sector and the way that the pandemic response has impacted students, teachers, all across Australia and across the world. Wherever you're listening from, I hope you know that we appreciate you and the work that you do. We're going to keep it short and sweet this week. This episode, we are going to be talking to Mia, who recently graduated her course in University of Melbourne. And following her graduation, she's going to share with us all of her experiences with doing the final assessment. For some, it's the TPA, sometimes it's the GTPA. For her and University of Melbourne students, it's the AFGT, the Assessment for Graduate Teachers. So the experience and the advice she has to share with us is about that. It's also about a good approach to anything to do with pre-service teaching and getting up to speed with placements and the opportunities that are available to you to finally become a teacher. So if you're looking at the end of your course or you're just getting started, then this is going to be a great episode for you to listen to. Mia also runs her own podcast as a bit of advice for high school students looking to educate themselves on what it's like in university, how to come to terms with aspects of high school, and learn about the careers that they can pursue and the subjects they'll need to pursue them. So we get a bit of an introduction at the start of this episode to the podcast, and if you want to go and listen, it's the Student Space Podcast found wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you want to get in touch with us or would like to guest on an episode, feel free to send a message to teachingculturecast at gmail.com. Check out our website, teachingculturecast.com. Without further ado, let's get stuck into the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Teaching Culture Cast, Mia. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. Um, now, just to start us off, part of the reason that you're here is because you've got your own podcast that you also run, the Student Spaces Podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that before we get stuck into the conversation? Absolutely. So, when I started my Masters of Teaching, which was in 2020, actually, I will go back a previous year before I started my Masters of Teaching. In 2019, I took a gap year, and that was a year after I completed a Bachelor of Commerce and realized, oh, I don't like what I'm studying. I don't see myself in this industry or in corporate. And then I found my passion in teaching. And while I was on that gap year, I had all these thoughts of what I wish I knew when I was in high school. And I thought of all the lessons that I learned now as, you know, a couple of years out of school and decided well, if I'm having these thoughts, I'm sure current students are having the same thoughts and questions that need to be answered essentially. And so I wrote them all down and I thought, well, I could do like a blog or a website, but instead I decided for a podcast where essentially I answer all the questions high school students are thinking. So they cover topics about high school, for example, like what's the GAT about, how a scaling in ATARs calculated and then I do a lot of interviews with current uni students. So you get insight onto what it's actually like life after high school. So I interview like some other business owners and people who haven't gone to uni because 
I know the last two years have been really tough. There have been no open days. We've been at home. So it's just a way and a resource for students to gain insight onto what life is like out of high school and a way to help them navigate high school currently. I've seen some of the episodes you've released more recently have been very specifically about the kinds of courses that can be available to students after they graduate. I know there was one where you talked to an intern at a law firm. There was also Mm. one where you talked to a medical student too. So a lot of good stuff there. Thank you. If you are listening and you're keen to check it out or tap it as a resource for your careers department in your school, please feel free to head out to the Student Spaces podcast. Plug, plug, plug. Love it. Thank you so much. (laughs) No, it's all good. Share and share alike in the teaching community. Now, just to get us started on your path, you already uh, gave us a little bit there talking about your undergraduate where you did a Bachelor of Commerce. How did you make the transition from that into teaching? Was it something you always wanted to do or did you kind of decide halfway through or what was the process there? Well, I know I already touched on this in my previous answer, but essentially from high school, I wanted to do a Bachelor of Commerce and be this, you know, boss manager type of thing. I didn't know what. And then I always thought later in life when I have a family, I'd love to be a teacher because I thought it'd be so cool to have me and the kids and, you know, my family all on the same timetable, like go to school together in the same routine. So that was always at the back of my mind, but I thought, no, I won't do it now. It'll be a later in life type of thing. And I did my commerce degree and I hated it. I finished it and I didn't get any job. I wasn't really trying to apply for a job. So like I said earlier, I took a gap year where I traveled and just work random part-time and casual jobs. And then that's where I realized, well, what do I love doing? What do I want to do every day that will make me happy? And so I always tutored students right from prep through the year 12. And then I always coached gymnastics. So I was always with teenagers working with them and I loved the feeling that I felt being around them and, you know, helping them improve, interacting with them. Then I thought, well, I can do this every day. And I thought, oh, I want to be a teacher later in life. So why not now? That's where it began. I enrolled into a master's of secondary teaching and I began at the start of 2020. And we can gladly say that you graduated this year, didn't you? Yes. Yes. Thank goodness. No more study. I'm so happy about that should say just in case people are going through the back catalogue, it's 2021 that you graduated because the master's is two years long. Yep. And it's a very inspiring story too. It's great to hear that that you've kind of uh, captured the thing that you want to take from life that's a positive, that, that enriches you and something that you know is something that you can sustainably strive for out of your career. Absolutely. Of course, we have to jump into the fact that you started the master's in 2020 as much as it's beaten like a common drum these days. The idea of remote learning and the lockdowns and stuff, because we are based in Victoria at the moment and you did it in Victoria, didn't you? Yep, that's right. At Unimelb, I went there. There was a lot of lockdowns to deal with. And would you say that the majority of your course was run not physically, but remotely instead? Yep. And I could probably tell you out of two whole years, I had three weeks on campus and that's it. And it's funny because when I was choosing what university to go to, I thought, oh, why don't I do my master's online? Like Deacon had a good program and there were a few other places with online options. But then I thought, you know what? I hated my undergrad and it was partly my fault because I never put myself out there, never made friends. I never actually went to my class. So I thought with my master's, let's start fresh and let's give it my all, go to all the classes, have an enriching in-person experience. And now fast forward, it's so funny that it happened to all be online with lockdown. (laughs) It's not the best, but would you say that you got as much out of it working remotely as you would have in person? I mean, 
Obviously, those social relationships in a university environment you can't foster online as easily. But in terms of the teaching course, do you think you got out as much as you would have otherwise? I definitely say I squeezed every part out of the degree as I could in terms of like putting myself out there, connections, volunteering. I must also say Uni Melbourne was really lucky just the way it worked out that we started uni. Everyone usually starts in March, but we started in Feb or late Jan, for example. So we got three or four weeks in person where I got to meet my peers and my classmates and form connections before the lockdown. So I think those three weeks at the start of 2020, before the world ended essentially, were crucial because we established our group chats. We had our like support network formed and still those friendships have stayed the same for the rest of the two years. So I did make the most of it even online. And the fact that they persisted all throughout, that means that you kind of rallied around each other in your subjects and shared answers around and study support and things like that. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's a point to the favour sometimes of universities that sounds like they're doing the right thing as long as the right people are around you. But it is interesting, University of Melbourne, it offers a lot of teaching courses that are a little bit left of centre compared to the rest of it. They tend to do their own thing for the most part. Oh, believe me, I've witnessed it. I've been through it. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us what you're aware of that was different that you noted as part of your course? So I, I, I believe it's changing. I think the new reforms coming in next year, but regardless, this was my experience. And some people might find this really scary, but Uni Melbourne got us in placement three weeks in. So it was crazy that we had started and we're, we're learning the basics. We haven't probably even gotten in front of the class, our own class to do a presentation and we were at placement two days a week. So the structure worked well, like we were at university Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we were at placement Thursday, Friday, which is quite full on, but that happened from the third week in. And I must say, I'm so thankful that they did it that way because it pushed us all out of our comfort zone really early. And then while a lot of people realize, hey, it's not for me, it was probably better to, that it happened that way as opposed to a couple weeks later or even semester two because you got a taste straight away of that classroom experience. So, Did you find that you could practically apply the things you were learning as you were going that yes. way? Like there was things you'd learn on Monday and then you'd deploy them that week? It was so funny. One of the classes, we I can't remember what it was called, but someone had asked and said, how are we going to behaviour manage a student if they throw a chair? I know that's very extreme. Or how are we going to behaviour manage if there's two boys at the back talking? And so we had that conversation on Wednesday because all of us were stressing going into placement Thursday and Friday. So the teacher, our, our, tu like our tutor, really stepped us through some of those practical experiences. And I just remember that so vividly because I was like, wow, thank God they're telling us this because I'm so nervous going into placement for the first time tomorrow. So how many overall days of, I guess, placement? did you have over the course? Non-COVID year, I think it was supposed to be 66, but as um, lockdowns happen, things were adjusted. So I can't remember the exact date that I did, but I believe I did get all 66. So I was quite lucky that I still got to complete them all. With placement though, the first block that I did was only like two or three weeks in person and then two weeks online. And then my second block of placement, because of lockdown and they wanted to minimize movement, they actually kept us at the same school unless there was an issue and you couldn't go there. So I had my first and my second block in my first year. So one in semester one and one in semester two, both at the same school, which was actually quite good because I did form like a nice connection, not only with the teachers, but teaching the same students. And then my 
final and third block was in semester one of the second year. And I actually went on a rural placement. So I did four weeks in person and then I think another week or two online again because there was a lockdown right in the middle of it. May have fallen right in that time where the entirety of Victoria had locked down, right? Yep, that's it. Okay. We're diving a bit too far into the logistics here, so stop me if we're going too far in. But uh, I am curious to hear if there were controls in place with the university to push those placements on the schools or whether it was by reciprocal agreement with the university or whether they approached you directly about going to the same school twice. What was the process involved there when the lockdowns happened? I think they just sent a big email out and said, due to logistics, COVID, like minimizing contact tracing and things like that, we're going to send you to the same school. If there is an issue because you've moved or you don't want to go back or there was some kind of issue, chat to them and they can change it essentially or help find another school for you. But I will say the University of Melbourne really valued equity in their placement. So for example, if you have a connection with another school, you're not allowed to go there. So you're required to write down all schools that you have like a prior connection with. So do you coach a sport there? Did you go to that school? And they won't send you there just because I think it's not fair. So even if you make a connection in the teacher community and you say, oh, can I please go to this school? Your chances are they'll say no, because again, they don't see that as fair, which I know some people think it's really nice and some people think it's frustrating, but it is what it is. Yeah. I think that the conflict of interest declaration is, I think it's important because I had that too. I, I did my master's in ACU and I've got to tell you, it sounds like you had a great placement experience. Uh, I think a lot of current pre-service teachers listening may not have had that. And I know I kind of, I ride the line between those two. My first and last placement were very easy to organize because we did them in uh, four week blocks. But my second one was not so easy. They, they were not too keen to get me in a school right away, uh, at which point I kind of had to play with that conflict of interest thing a little bit. And having a prior relationship with, with teachers in schools, I kind of went to them and said, hey, if I go to my placement coordinators and say, uh, they've said it's okay, can you check them out for us? Are they going to be able to say yes? And luckily for me, that was the case. So I've actually been to a placement school and done my practice with that conflict which, I mean, it's, it's not an unfortunate thing. I think as a teaching community, what you find when you've been in the industry for a little while is that we're all, we all know each other somehow. It's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know, everybody's connected. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so true. Okay. And, and overall, your practice was successful. You were pretty happy with it. Look, honestly, I, I'm quite lucky. I only went to two schools because the first two were the same. I had a great experience at all of them. Um, I will share a little bit of a slack of my experience at the country. So I put my hand up at the start of the year and said, hey, um, to the placements team, if possible, I'd love you to send me rural or to like a regional school. And the reason I did that was because my first two placements were at, you know, a state school in the eastern suburbs. I didn't really get to experience too much, you know, behavior issues or socioeconomic differences type of thing. So I thought I want to challenge myself and I want to graduate the degree with some talking points to bring to a, you know, interview or to my next classroom experience. And I applied, I got in, and I remember as soon as I got into that rural placement opportunity that I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to go. I'm so nervous. What am I going to do? What if I like freak out? I just remember being so nervous. And then fast forward to the end of the four or five weeks or however long it was, it was the best experience ever. Like I was pushed out of my comfort zone. I got to learn so much, not only about myself, but about the students and just the 
you know, regional community that I was in. Um, and I highly recommend it to anyone listening. If you think it is for you or you think you're not sure, give it a go. Um, not only is the university so supportive, but the school and the community that you will go to will really welcome you with open arms. And there are lots of grants with the university and I think Vic government for, to help with like accommodation out in regional rural areas as well. So definitely recommend it. I loved it. And I think it's it's a really important message to send to all pre-service teachers and teachers alike that, that going outside your comfort zone is really important, especially in those initial stages, maybe even the first couple of years of teaching. If you don't try it, you know, you may be in a Catholic school teaching years nine to 11 and only all girls for the rest of your life. You know, you got to prepare and be able to adapt. Absolutely. Speaking highly of rural schools as well, did you move out there when you were doing your practice or was it close enough to commute? I could have commuted, but I stayed there Monday to Friday and then I came home on the weekend. So it was worked out like cheaper with accommodation that I would just stay from Monday to Friday. So I went to Seymour College and from my place, it was only, I'm going to say, an hour and a half or two hours, depending on the traffic. Look, I could commute it every day, but two hours, that's a long time. I'd be mm. exhausted one way. So I did stay out there, which was good. Um, and then I came home on the weekend. It's probably good to make that practice sustainable, right? You don't want to get burnt out being at home and not have time to decompress and do all the self-care. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk about that final placement. And I don't know, you, you might have a different experience with the University of Melbourne, but one of the biggest bugbears of any pre-service teacher completing their master's is the GTPA, which is a fun time, <laughs> a fun three months for <laughs> any student getting close to the end and finally realizing, oh man, I need to address all these ATSL standards with data and evidence and analysis and all these different components. And there never seems to be a solid rule book on how it all works. What was your experience like with what is, what I'm sure you'll tell us is the GTPA equivalent for University of Melbourne? Again, Uni Melbourne like to do their own thing, which is so fine. Ours was called AFGT, so Assessment for Graduate Teachers. And essentially it worked the same. What I might do is go into what the requirements are for each element because it will make a little bit more sense. So there are four elements in the AFGT. Elements one to three relate to placement and L of I was going to say elephant, not elephant. I mean, <laughs> element, sorry. Element four is just a standalone thing that you do. So I'll talk about element four first. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the fourth element we did online as like a multi-choice test in a way. So what happens, you log on online and it's they give you a scenario. So a student in your class has done da-da-da, whatever. And then it gives you multi-choice answers and you pick, you know, A, B, C, D or E. And then you have 100 words to explain why you have picked your, you know, multi-choice answer. And then in your response, you have to include literature as to why you would do that. You could tell that it's positioned in the different ATSL groups, like the standards, and then submit that. And then that's one element done. So that was the, the last one. We actually completed that first before we went on placement. But the one that we all stress about is elements one to three. And essentially it's this, like you described it, a massive piece of work that we have to do. But it actually can be easy. I know everyone's going to think, why are you saying it's easy? Because it's, it's huge. But it can be easy if you are really prepared and you plan well for placement. The first element has you describe who are your students. So you pick one class that you're teaching on placement and that's your class that you will write this assignment on. So the first element is 
Who are the students? What are they ready to learn? How will you help them learn? And essentially, it's like a lesson plan justifying why you've chosen certain activities or certain uses of ICT for that lesson. This is all like in a Word document. You write it all up and there's different tables throughout everything and you just fill it out. And it's great because it actually steps out how many words each response should be. So it's really easy to follow. This is a template that they give you to fill in for the whole thing, right? Whole whole thing. We have a template, which is amazing. Thank goodness. Yeah. (laughs) So again, written for element one. And so what I actually did with my placement, I went to my mentor teacher and I said, hey, I have to do this AFGT. I'm freaking out. And he said, don't stress. It's so fine. Like I've helped other teachers, like my teacher mentees do it before. So it's all good. Let's plan it for our first day. And then the rest of your lesson sequence will follow. So essentially you could do this assignment while you're at placement if you wanted to. So anyway, that's element one. Element two is a little bit different. You have to record yourself for two whole lessons teaching. So they like you to record maybe one lesson at the start of you know the week and one maybe at the end of the week or the following week. So you record two lessons in the sequence. Um, so it doesn't matter when. Essentially, what you're doing is you review and you analyze what happened in the lesson, how you communicated, what you could have done, you know, differently perhaps. And the tricky part for me was that my first lesson was recorded in person. And then my second lesson, I had to record myself online. So it was quite hard to get, you know, the chatter amongst the students and, you know, um, the responses because they were just typing their answers over Zoom. So it was hard to get um, that feedback. But again, didn't really affect any marks or anything because everyone was in the same boat. And how did the recording work when you were physically in the classroom? Was it just a camcorder on a tripod at the back of the room or just audio? Of course, there were like protocols in terms of like privacy and safety for the students. So all students had to fill out like a waiver and the principal. And essentially, I just had my phone on the desk with leaning up on my drink bottle and it was just filming me. So it was just filming myself for 75 minutes and I was walking. Honestly, I was out of the frame for probably half the time because when I teach, I like to walk around and interact, but you could still hear me. It was no big deal. And then online when I recorded, I was like talking on Zoom and I just had my phone on my desk just recording myself as well. So it was kind of a bit like a monologue and would have honestly been the most boring thing to watch back. But hey, that's what we had to do anyway. It must have given you enough to analyze and reflect on. Yeah. So you just you just pick like 10 minutes out of the lesson. So I just picked a 10-minute segment that I was, you know, lecturing or maybe you did a class discussion or something. All right. What's what's element three? Element three, this is probably the part that everyone hates and it's all about data and assessment. So we had to produce a Gutman chart. You, you're probably, students might be listening to this and might be like, what on earth is that? But essentially it's like this big kind of table thing on Excel that has all the students and their marks, which is like separated in terms of like a rubric. But if that's not how you want to present it, you can present it in another type of graph or in a data way. But essentially, you're analyzing the trends, you're analyzing how effective your assessment was, and you pick three students and you say the next steps for them. So I they typically recommend like a low, a mid, and a high student, and you suggest like the next pathway for like the next lesson. So yeah, you get a lot of data through the students with all of this. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the pressure that comes along with this. The the idea that you're structuring your final placement as the thing that gives you everything you need to then build out this massive submission. Some people might worry 
that you're not getting enough to be able to, you know, have enough to, to work with on the other side. And once you start going on the other end and doing that analysis, you can't just go back in time and run the lessons again to make sure you get more. Mm. So did you have a technique throughout? I know you said your mentor was very supportive in giving you all the opportunities to record everything that you could. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to gather as much data as they can to, to give them the best leg up when they get to the stage of the analysis? Yes, absolutely. And this is my biggest hint. And this is not only just for the AFGT, but any placement that you do or just like anything in future teaching life. Data, data, data. And I mean that by take photos of everything. And so this sounds silly, like you're not going to take selfies in class, but and of course, ensure um, the privacy with the students. So like you just de-identify their names and things. But anything that my students had done in the class, I had my phone out and I was taking photos of their work. I was taking photos of, you know, if they did a poster, if they did notes, if one person like I like invited students up and got them to draw on the whiteboard or do a brainstorm, took photos of that. And all of those kind of pieced together the puzzle, which was perfect. And my second tip with the data is do a Google survey or a Google form or like a Microsoft form at the beginning. And if you can, at the end of every week, but the beginning, the middle and the end. So not only asking questions about how you're teaching, um, your communication, you know, maybe how they're feeling with the content, but also like right at the start, get some data on what are their hobbies? What are their interests? What are they doing after school? Their passion for the subject. They might hate maths and you might be the math teacher. Get them to write it, like try get as much information as you can. And that really helps paint the story, not only for the AFGT, but just placement and life as a teacher in general. Mm. And I just realized a bit of a gap. I never asked you what your teaching subjects were. Oh, well, okay. My teaching subjects are VCE, business management and commerce, but I'm also really passionate about math. So yeah, that's why I said maths before. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, okay. Well, in, in a bit of a devil's advocate position, there might be some people who enter the profession or have been doing it for a long time and say, gathering that much data all the time is just, it's so much work. You, you wouldn't reasonably expect yourself to be taking pictures of every single student's work in every single student's lesson, uh, six lessons a day or however many lessons throughout the day you have, and then doing something with that data. Um, so to those people who would say that data collection maybe isn't something to pursue as evidence of their own reflections, could you tell us a little bit about how you've been reflecting on that data, both for the, I'm always going to get the acronym wrong, uh, your submission, yep, <laughs> as well as how you intend to take it into teaching as well? So I think one of my teachers at uni actually gave this piece of advice and said, look, I'm going to be honest, it is impossible to target the, all 26 kids in the class in the one lesson. And so in order to combat that, and that's the same with data, you can't get data from 26 kids in one lesson. But what you could do, you target three students a lesson and you just work with, with, with them in getting some kind of data, whether it's an image or a survey or something, each lesson moving forward. So that was just like one little tip. And I thought that was quite good because you're so true. Like we can't get ourselves and get all this data because essentially we're very time poor. So moving forward, what I would do is I will try, again, I haven't been in a classroom since placement earlier this year. So when I am in the classroom, I will hope to implement maybe like the target a three student per lesson thing, or maybe three to five. I know at uni, they really harp on about reflection 
and reflecting on your practice and that's what makes you a better teacher. And I never understood it back then, but now that I've, you know, finished uni, graduated and had my time to reflect, I think it's so important and I've had some time to go back and look at, you know, some student work samples and thought, wow, I could be doing this or I could alter my teaching method this way. So, yeah, using the data to just like self-reflect is very important. That's not something we do all the time. And I think the form of that data can sometimes be underestimated, like the idea of coming away from a lesson and having all these thoughts in your brain, like little Johnny, he didn't really pick up on that. I wonder why that is. Maybe next lesson I need to do something a little bit different for him. The timing of this lesson was really off. We didn't get time to do the closeout activity. Uh, Maybe I need to adjust how I do this next year or next time. And those kinds of reflections are based on data that you do in the moment. But as data, you still need to record them somewhere, I guess, or at least action them as soon as you can. But having that hard data is incredibly useful as well. I think another thing that teachers tend to think about when you hear data, it's the IT of things. You know, it's it's always technology focused. We're going to do a Kahoot and gather some of those results. We're going to uh, use an app like Socrative or something like that and get something digitally on a file somewhere that I can analyze later. But of course, there's a whole host of different ways that aren't technological for you to gather that data as well. You're so right. It could even be just a conversation with the teacher as a data or your own reflection or you're walking in the staff room and you say, oh, hey, to your mentor teacher, what did you think about this last part? And that conversation that can be just as valuable as some hard, you know, photos or numbers as well. That's it. And in a bit of a recursive manner, as part of your final submission, the mid practice and final practice uh, summary and recommendations you get from your mentor should be used as part of your reflection in that submission too, because that's also feedback on your teaching. So that's an incredibly good point. Well, let's say that you've you've done your framework, you've you've built it in place, you've done all your data gathering, and you've got all this stuff together to start making your final submission to put together whatever it is, whatever it's going to be. When you got to that stage, did you find that you were pretty overwhelmed or were you very prepared to start putting it all into something that makes sense? Look, to be honest, when I did this AFGT, it was the time where all the other assignments are due, you know what, like- like it always is, everything always falls on the same submission date. And so I wasn't stressed with how hard it was. I knew it was very straightforward. It was just a matter of time management to do it while balancing the other, like my other workload um, as well. So, But it was time intensive though. Yeah, it definitely was. There were pages and pages and um, because there were tables and because there was data, I think I spent a lot of time formatting it as well to make it in one nice PDF document as well. Um, little things like that. The, the format of how you express that content in the final submission as well can sometimes be a bit variable. I've even seen comments online of people asking, is it okay to, to annotate in the margins of students' work or photocopies of students' work just to make notes and make it clear to the person assessing the content to make sure that everything's covered. But um, anything and everything, probably. But as long as you allocate the time to do it, that's the most important thing, right? Absolutely. When you submitted it, uh, I'm guessing that you were successful first time? Yes. This is actually good to talk about because if you- the ranking, the rankings, the marking's a bit weird. You get like UG ungraded, G minus, G plus, something else. It's like four rankings. 
So you have to get like G's, like a certain amount of G's to pass. Like, I don't know if they're good. I don't know if they're great. I don't know what it means. But if, for example, you don't pass one section, I believe you get a chance to resubmit it again. So that's a that's a really good part of it that if for some reason something fails, it's something not to stress about, you do get another chance. And it's not the whole thing. It's just whatever element. So for example, if you don't do your video element correctly or you don't, you know, record two in the sequence, then um, you get a chance to do it again. But it's from my memory with doing the GTPA with ACU, they also make a strong note in your submission to justify everything you do as well. So if you've got a recording that is, you know, out of the norm, it's not a part of the scope and sequence, but there's still information to be derived from that, then uh, you have to justify it as part of that. And if the ungraded means you haven't addressed why that recording is the way it is, perhaps that's just the thing that you need to adjust. Absolutely. That's so true. And it's not something that you won't know why you've gone wrong. They would tell you with the feedback as to, okay, this element hasn't met this because X, Y, Z. And then you think, okay, I just need to link it more or explain why more and then or justify it more, and then you'll know that when you do resubmit, that it will be. Exactly. And and that's that's really important to note. It does feel like it's a bit of a one and done, and you have one shot at this, and it's hours and hours of work compressed into one thing that you send, and they say, yes, you can be a teacher, or no, you can't. But you do have chances to go back, and it's there's a safety net there. They, they want to support you to pass this thing. Absolutely. They're not out to get you. You're, you're not, they're not out to make you fail. They want you to go off and be amazing teachers. That's it. And I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would, I would give to people pursuing whatever submission they do, the AFGT or the GTPA, that if they need to, talk to people around them. And it would be easy for you to say, Mia, because you established your networks very early and very strongly. Talk to the people around you that are doing, doing it as well. And when you're talking to your lecturers or your tutors about guidance for it, try to make what you're asking as specific as possible. I know that for a long time in my classes, people were like, oh, the GTPA, okay. What is that? How do we do the GTPA? Invariably, every time the lecturer would come back and say, well, we had a class last week. Did you, did you, did you listen to me talking about that? And because there's so many components to it that you could very easily ask a very direct question to yield something that's going to be a bit more valuable to you. But look, it's it's one of those things. It's it's invariably what people will encounter when they're doing their teaching studies. And I guess to know that the experience can be all right, that even doing it remotely or doing it in person, it's something that you can do successfully to become a teacher. It's it's something that we need to remind pre-service teachers about, I think. Absolutely. And the final note is I'm sure the school, your university would give you like past sample examples of the GTPA or the AFGT. And there's a huge, and if, if they don't, there's a huge teacher community on Instagram, um, like the teachergram that they call it, that you could reach out if, you know, you're primary to a primary teacher or secondary to a secondary teacher and say, hey, I had this question about the GTPA. I know you were once in my shoes. Do you mind um, if I ask you it? And everyone's so lovely, of course, they'd be able to help you wherever they can. Teachers supporting teachers. Always. That's why we brought the podcast about. <laughs> Love it. All right. Just, just on another note, the land tight is another really interesting topic of discussion. Um, let's breeze past the, uh, the idea that it's a, 
It's a test for literacy and numeracy that's run by an external agency. It becomes a requirement of a tertiary course that you're paying lots and lots of money for. This is a conversation that happens quite regularly. When the Lantite came up for you, were you fairly confident that you'd pass it straight away? Yeah, not to sound like up myself, but I, it didn't deter me at all. I was like, yep, yeah, no worries, just another test, a day in a life of like, I just thought of it as like nap plan, right? I just thought, yeah. yeah, it'll be fine. I'm very strong in math, so I had no problem at all. I was actually really looking forward to the maths part, but I was actually a little bit nervous for the literacy component because I was like, oh, I haven't done reading comprehension for ages since my year nine nap plan days or even maybe the GAT back in year 12. Hmm. So, because I was a little bit nervous just for the English part, I was actually, like I mentioned earlier, I was lucky that I had made some friends in the first three weeks that I said to a few students in my class, do you want to meet at the library and go through the practice land type and discuss our answers? So, we sat around a table, we got it up on the screen and we did the questions together with the literacy component. And it was good just to talk through, oh, I chose A because this, or I chose B. And then we got to check our answers to see who was right. And that was my really good way to kind of gain my confidence before going into that test. Okay. And did you have the opportunity to do it physically in on the location or did you have to do it remotely? Yeah. So I booked my land tight, um, the math and the English one, both on the same day in the city. And I booked it for the first window, which means there's different times of the year you could do it. And I thought, I want to get it done straight away. I don't want it hanging over my head. Um, and I got the opportunity to go into the city. I should also note that even back when it wasn't locked down, you could actually elect to do it at home anyway. And so for people who are quite nervous or anxious or perhaps don't like big groups, because what it is, it's just one big room with a billion computers and you go in and you're sitting with everyone. If that's not your style, you can elect to do it from home as well. You just, you know, show your camera to the supervisor that, you know, you're not cheating and everything. Um, and that's also another option, which, I didn't even I didn't even really know about, but it would have been nice to know that it was there had I'd been, you know, nervous to go into the city. Yeah, that's that's the experience I got too. That you kind of get in there expecting, you know, cameras on top of you, like full surveillance kind of thing. But it's really just a computer with a word browser, and you complete it there. And yep. maths component has its own little calculator on the screen that you can use and stuff like that, and it's pretty standard. Yep. But yeah, like you, I wasn't aware of the. The remote component, I, I just figured they would have introduced it as part of the pandemic response. And you passed first time both courses? Yes. I remember walking out and I was like, yep, I smashed the maths part. And then I was like, oh, I don't really know about that English part. I was a bit nervous. And, and the results came back and I like killed the maths part and the English I just passed. But it doesn't matter because you just need to pass for both anyway. And that's the um, thing, right? No one looks at the Lantite. As long as you pass, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And you get like three or four chances at that. Absolutely. And I should also note, well, the University of Melbourne had land height support help classes, or I think it was on Zoom by then, so Zoom sessions. Mm -hmm. And I know a few other unis do that as well. So if you're really stressed about the numeracy part, or maybe you forget how to calculate a percentage, go to those classes and just brush up on your skills, which um, helped so much. Yeah. They tend to be pretty upfront with classes like that. At least at ACU they were, which was really good. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is a lot of the uh, the formality stuff that you do. You know, you've finally finished. You're graduated as a teacher, starting to think about the rest of your career. Where would you like to see yourself in the next five or ten years as a teacher? Like, do you see yourself in leadership or 
just teaching? Well, definitely short term. I want to push myself out of my comfort zone as much as I can. And I know a lot of people don't really want to do that. But like I had gone to the country and I was nervous. And then five weeks later, I loved it. I want to do the same early in my career. So trying single sex education, Catholic, state, um, independent schools, and also like new learning areas or teaching areas, if possible, just to really broaden my you know wealth of knowledge. But long term, I really do see myself in a leadership position and transitioning out of the classroom. So yes, I'd love to be head of house and essentially a principal, but really I do see myself in the teacher industry or education space, not as a teacher, but like in business of some sort. So like as a business owner, I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's to do with the student space. Yeah, that's what I envision myself. Interesting. And that just goes to show you with, I think, a few of the other podcasts that we've experienced in my own journey too, that training to become a teacher isn't the only job that you're training for. You could do a whole bunch of other things too. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see where it goes because it's funny, um, in our first day of uni, we had to answer this very same question. And it's funny how much it changes as you progress and as you learn more. So I could say this now and then next year I could be on a different path. Who knows? We'll have to organise a check-in with you in the next five years if we've still got a podcast then. Yeah, sure. I'll be like, oh, I'm in the department now of education or something or I'm working in this or I'm still at the school. So, yeah, it'll be nice to know. I'm excited. Maybe you'll be a thought leader at an international baccalaureate school in Abu Dhabi or something. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, opportunities are endless. And it's good that you mentioned international because I do hope to do a classic teach in London for a year just for some fun while I'm young. Yeah, definitely. That's on the cards. So again, if you're listening, opportunities are endless. Now, I think we're at that stage of the podcast where I ask everybody this question. Uh, What is the one big pearl of wisdom, that one big tip or big piece of advice that you'd give to the entire teaching community that you've picked up in your, your studies and your practice so far? I would definitely recommend someone to put themselves out there in terms of whether that's volunteering, whether that's through sport, as much as they can. And so, for example, to really make the most of not only your placement experience, but to build on your, you know, teacher pedagogy and your experience and your, you know, your social and emotional learning skills, stay back for the staff meetings, go to the inter-school sports, help a student at lunch. And I think that's really where you learn the most outside the classroom. Um, So even if you can volunteer at uni and do like a special talk or who knows, maybe you go on a podcast or start your own little thing. Like I started my own podcast. I think those experiences taught me the most about teaching as opposed to just being in a classroom. And so, yeah, I'm so thankful for all the opportunities that I've, you know, encountered because of just, you know, talking to someone or going outside your comfort zone, volunteering for something. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, definitely recommend that to anyone listening. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll see you in five years. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Um, It's been lovely. And thank you, Matt, again for having me on the podcast. No worries at all. That was Mia talking about the University of Melbourne lockdown placements and the assessment for graduate teachers. If you like the Teaching Culture Cast, make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, family and colleagues. And while you're at it, make sure you check out Mia's podcast as well, the Student Space Podcast. 
Make sure you check out the website as well, teachingculturecast.com. And next week, we'll be talking to Tim and can tell us a bit more about the rural versus metro experience for teachers and how beneficial it can actually be. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a fortnight and enjoy your break.